and the opposite. So I will do that now and also explain about taking refuge in Peter. And first of all, the third one of the five is to undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. It means hurting another person physically or emotionally. And the opposite of that is to be reliable, trustworthy, steadfast, faithful, a person that one can really trust. Now, if we are a person that can be trusted, we have the immediate benefit that we also can trust ourselves. We know that what we promise, we will keep. We have no doubt. We don't feel anxious about our own actions. We know we're totally reliable. It gives one a feeling of being a rock in the current of a raging stream. The raging stream being the emotions and actions in the world around us oneself being totally reliable, trustworthy, and knowing to be so feels rock-like and safe. To try to find safety somewhere else is an impossibility. If it happens, it's very nice, but it doesn't have the same feeling as one has within oneself. So it, does, it applies to all situations in one's life, whether there is sex involved or not. You can see from that quite clearly that we probably did not invent the sexual revolution. Otherwise, the Buddha wouldn't have given that injunction. It's probably been existing ever since man was around men and women, of course. So, it is something that has created havoc in people's lives forever so long because of our inherent attitude of craving and clinging. And because these precepts are given to ordinary, everyday kind of people who are beset with craving and clinging, they are meant to be a safeguard against unhappiness. If we protect ourselves, we protect everybody else. And this is the idea behind it. It's uh, not this do-gooding to the world. First of all, it breaks down if we don't do good to ourselves. And secondly, it doesn't ring true neither in our own hearts nor in anybody else's. It's looking after our own steadfastness. This applies to our friendships of any kind. The uh, relationships we have with many people, we don't just have relationships with sexual partners. 
We have so many relationships at work, with uh, neighbors, with uh, people we work with, with um, maybe our patients or maybe our bosses. There are so many different kinds. And we have relationships with our own children or with our parents. Innumerable relationships. And we change our attitude as the relationship is a different one to different people. But one attitude can and should remain within us if we have developed that, namely that steadfastness, that faithfulness, no matter what happens. A person who is a good friend, somebody to be relied upon, is a person that is not shaken by circumstances which affect a friend. It can be any one of the eight worldly conditions which affects the friend. Loss or gain, praise or blame, fame or ill fame, happiness or unhappiness. It doesn't affect our reliability and our steadfastness and our faithfulness. If we feel that within, we have great gain. There's a story of the Buddhist time which illustrates to protect oneself and thereby protecting others. There was a, an acrobat who used to go around from village to village showing off his art. No television, no movies in those days. So they had acrobats and storytellers actually quite nice. This acrobat had a little assistant. It seems to have been a little girl. It doesn't come out quite clearly, but the little assistant is called Little Fat Pot. <laughs> That's the name. And uh, was a youngster, very young. And the uh, act was that the acrobat had a long pole, like a 20-foot-long pole, which he would balance on his head and would turn it in one direction. And the little assistant would climb up onto the pole, the top of the pole, stand on his or her head, I think it was a girl on her head, and twirl herself around in the opposite direction. Now, obviously, it's not an easy thing to do. So... <laughs> So they um, practiced every day to perfect that and keep in practice. So this particular morning, the little assistant arrived and the acrobat uh, said, all right, now you get up on the top of the pole and watch what you're doing. You protect me and I'll protect you and together this act will work very nicely and will make a good living. And the little assistant said, no, Master, I'm going to protect myself, and you protect yourself, and this act will work very well, and together we'll make a good living. So this uh, Master was a bit upset because this youngster was uh, contradicting him, and, uh, but didn't say anything, and he went to the Buddha and said, you know, this uh, assistant of mine is becoming a bit uppity, 
and towards the Buddha as a spirit. And the Buddha said, the assistant is right. Little Pakpod has it quite clear. <laughs> so we protect ourselves. And by that, we protect everybody else. And if we protect ourselves from evil, nobody's going to have any evil repercussions. The fourth one of the precepts is to undertake the training to refrain from wrong speech. Now, wrong speech has a lot of implications. And it is the one of the five precepts which is the hardest to keep and the most often broken. It, of course, includes lying. That's natural. But it includes far more than that. It includes harsh speech, backbiting, gossiping, turning one friend against another, and idle chatter. And that last one is the one that we fall down upon. Idle chatter means that we speak or talk for talking's sake. You see, it is the most popular, most widely used entertainment because we think it's free. It doesn't cost anything. So we use it constantly. And if we use it strictly for entertainment, which is idle, it doesn't have purpose. Now, of course, the opposite of wrong speech is right speech. So we can use clear comprehension. Clear comprehension with its four points. What's the purpose? Is this the most skillful means? Is it within the Dhamma? And then have I achieved the purpose? And if we use that kind of criteria about our speech, it would be enormously helpful. Naturally, it will still not always work. But at least we will be completely aware of our own purposes, of our own intentions. And doing that, we would be saved from making bad karma. Because karma, oh monks, I declare is intention. So when we know our own intention, our own purpose, even though the most skillful means may have eluded us, we still haven't made any negative karma. Now that is already a great safeguard. Skillful means in speech does not mean becoming an orator. It doesn't mean that we have to go to speech classes. It means something entirely different. It means what the Buddha said about speaking. He said, if we know anything that could be harmful and is untrue, don't say it. If we know anything that could be harmful and it's true, don't say it. If we know anything that could be helpful and it's untrue, don't say it. 
If we know anything that could be helpful, and it's true, find the right time, which would eliminate impulsive speaking. And we would, if we could always abide by that, never get into a situation where we would have to say, look, I'm sorry what I said, I didn't mean it, or I wasn't myself, or um, I think you understood me wrong, or all those things that we do use in order to make friends again. If our speech was always that thought out, one would assume that it would always fall on willing ears. It doesn't. There's no guarantee. But at least it has a chance, which it otherwise very often doesn't. We are also inclined not only not to listen, we are also inclined not to hear. It's not uncommon for somebody to say something and the other person will say, but I told you that already. We don't even hear it. The more we are, what we say, in our heads, and the less we are in our hearts, the less we hear. The head makes its own noise, and that doesn't necessarily mean sound. It just makes so much noise because it chatters. If we have an intention of using our speech for good purposes, the skill which we can arouse in ourselves for that is based upon love and compassion. If we can talk to somebody with love and compassion, we have a much better chance of reaching that person still not 100% sure or perfect. By the same token, we also need to protect our own happiness. There's a fine line between that, and we got to know which side we're on. Certainly, we want to be outgoing and giving as much as we can, but we've also got to protect ourselves. The more our spiritual practice has advanced in the direction of equanimity, the less protection we need. A person like the Buddha needs no protection whatsoever. Anybody could say anything. It didn't at all uh, have any impact on him. Well, we don't have quite that kind of equanimity. Speech is our most common connection with each other and should therefore carefully guard it. Now, it doesn't mean that we should become totally silent. We wouldn't be very helpful to other people, even if we said never anything that was evil. But we wouldn't say anything good either. So again, we have the middle path. Lying is, of course, a feature of our own ego delusion. Harsh words is a feature of our own hate. Gossiping is our, a feature of our own hate connected to greed. And backbiting, again, hate. So we can examine with 
clear comprehension. Lying was considered by the Buddha as the primary fault which would induce all others. If we started lying, he told his own little son, Rahula, the whole spiritual path would be blocked for us. But lying also includes exaggerating and underrating. Exaggerating, making it bigger, or underrating, making it smaller. Again, based on ego delusion. Because if we have been to a place where there were thousands of people, maybe it would, would appear as if it was very important to be there. So we were part of that importance. And maybe in reality there were only hundreds of people. And underrating is the same ego delusion. If we make it less important because we want to retreat into our own shell. The retreating into one's own shell is based on the same kind of delusion. Who's retreating? Who's got a shell? Whose shell is it? So while it sometimes appears to be less of an evil trip, exactly the same. It's no difference. It may not be quite as obstructive to other people, but it has exactly the same base. With speech being such an important feature of our everyday life, you also have to watch the input. Now that is another important aspect of our daily lives, and I like to put emphasis on it right now. I'm sure that most of us or all of us are concerned with the kind of food we put into our body. We might only eat brown rice and never white rice, or brown sugar, or no sugar, and no coffee, and only herb tea, and who knows what else. All bought at the health food shop at three times the price. <laughs> That's fine. Nothing wrong with that great. We've got to put health food into our mind. It's far more important. And they don't sell it at the health food shop. In fact, this doesn't cost anything. But we've got to be very careful. And this is what we do when we watch the input. We get input into our mind from the media and that is something that needs to be watched very carefully. I used to say this sort of thing in passing, but it has become such an influence in people's lives that it now needs to be really regarded as one of the dangers. It has its good sides, we all know that. But the danger is when we do not discriminate about the input that we're getting. Newspapers, magazines, television, radio, trash books, and all the rest that is on the market. To refrain from any input from those. News, 
If one is a newscaster, one has to know the news. It's very doubtful whether one really has to know what's going on in the world. I made an experiment one time. We moved into a very, very old house and uh, had to rip up the uh, linoleum on the floor because it was in a total disrepair. And under the linoleum, there were newspapers from 1929. So we started reading the newspapers. <laughs> and uh, nothing had changed except the names and the prices. That's all. And the date, of course. Otherwise, it was exactly the same news as we have now. Everything was much cheaper. The people who were mentioned were all dead. The date was, of course, a different one. Nothing else had changed. Everything was just as bad then as it is now. Everybody was having problems. Dukkha all over the newspaper. So whether one really has to know the latest newspaper news or not is a matter of personal um, understanding whether this is necessary. But there are other food objects that we put into the mind, and those are our personal conversations, which probably have a greater impact than even the media or any of the other things which come from outside, because they do have a sort of an impersonal aspect to them, newspapers and magazines. But if we talk to people, that is a personal input. We have to watch the conversation. Noble conversation. One of the common antidotes for all our five hindrances. And if other people do not start the noble conversation, it's up to us to change the conversation. To change it, and if we are incapable of doing that, which I'm often told happens in work situations, we'll have to not accept that kind of food, just as we wouldn't eat anything that has a certain rottenness about it, smells bad or whatever it may be, and just go away from that kind of input. We need to protect our own integrity. We need to protect our own peacefulness to the point where we realize when it is affected doesn't mean to become a recluse, doesn't mean to disappear from the scene, not at all. It means that we guard what comes into us. Just like we look at our plate or in our kitchen, what goes into the body, we look at that, what is being said, to see what goes into our mind. Very often, we will have that ability and opportunity to change the conversation if that is our intention. Because it's not difficult to bring people onto a different track of mind. This conversation that we're having with others is naturally also very much subject to the conversation we're having with ourselves. And every meditator is well aware of personal conversations which are very detrimental to meditation, but are again and again coming up and rearing their ugly heads. When, ugly, when 
they are useless. Idle chatter. The mind chatters. Just as the body breathes. So the mind chatters. Unless it's been trained to stop. Now in meditation, obviously, we have a chance to stop. However, sometimes the mind just won't. It chatters. And in our daily lives, we can't just sit around and meditate. First of all, there are opportunities when that just, or occasions, I should say, when that just isn't possible. And the mind still chatters uselessly. That is the time when we can direct the mind usefully. It's not necessary to accept the mind as it is. And this is the most important aspect that every meditator learns right from the word go. Whether we ever become concentrated at that time or not is not the criteria. We learn that we do not have to accept the mind as it is. We can do something more useful with it. In this case, in our daily life, to direct it towards something which will bring us some insight, which will bring some wisdom, which will be helpful, not to accept the chattering chatterbox of a mind just as it is. Speech is a very important item in the Buddha's teaching. It reappears in not only the precepts, but also in the Noble Eightfold Path. It appears in the um, many discourses, and it is again and again to be considered one of our manifestations of our own inner being. Now, if our own inner being has been worked upon to let go of that which is unwholesome and cultivate that which is wholesome, our speech will be likewise. We do need to watch the input because we are all very susceptible and also easily influenced. We may not think so. We may think that we have very firm convictions, opinions, and viewpoints, all based, of course, on wisdom, but we don't. We are easily influenced, and it is much easier, unfortunately, to influence people towards that which appears to be quickly comfortable, easily easily obtained and creating sensual gratification than it is to influence people toward that which is difficult but promises something much greater. If it weren't so, we'd have at least 5,000 people sitting here. Much more difficult. So we need to watch that in ourselves the influence which comes from outside. And if we have the good fortune to be together with people who are wise and mature and have spiritual values in their hearts, we must be grateful for that opportunity that we can discuss matters of importance with such people. Now, this doesn't mean that every sentence we utter has to be of the most profoundest importance and the most uh, uh, 
depth psychology that is possible. It doesn't mean that at all. We can very well ask somebody, how are you feeling, if we mean it. To want to know, how are you feeling, and have a kind of a connection to that person. Perfectly um, wholesome to do that. If there is that feeling behind those words that one really wants to have a, a connection to the person and show the other person one's own concern. And kind and friendly speech, which just has a sort of a um, feeling of happiness. Nothing wrong with that. Not at all. It's just the kind of speech which is so often used, which makes people feel badly or which is demanding. We want something. The more we want, the less we're going to get. It's a law of nature. The law of nature works that the more we give, the more we get. And with that, our speech will probably fall into line in most, at most times, and we won't feel have we won't have to write letters of apology like some people do when whenever some connection or relationship uh, occurs afterwards they have to sit down and write letters of apology because they didn't watch their speech. Now the watching of speech must be a result of meditation, otherwise meditation hasn't worked. Because what is it? It's mindfulness, nothing else. Obviously, mindfulness slips, but once in a while, not all the time. The last one of the five precepts is to undertake the training to refrain from taking intoxicating drugs or drinks. Quite simply, because it confuses the mind even more than it is already confused. The antidote for that is practicing mindfulness, the opposite. Mindfulness brings the mind to a point of clarity where it is one-pointed, attentive, non-judgmental, and on a level of clarity which feels that there are no burdens. That's why it's the path of purification. A mindful mind carries no burdens around. The burdens reappear when the mind thinks of all its imaginary problems that it has. In reality, we don't have any problems. We make them. How do we make them? By wanting things. Not necessarily material things. Just wanting. Whatever it is that we could figure out, we want it. Now, it's extremely helpful if we feel that our mind is often burdened to make a list of all the things we want but very honestly and they are not refrigerators and motor cars most of us have them anyway we don't want them they are taken for granted these days what do we want? we want security, safety physical comfort long life happiness nice children, whatever it may be, write it down. And then look at it and say, who wants it? What is it for? Why do I have to have this? 
and keep on questioning and see whether you can reduce the list. The more you reduce the list, the less problems. Because none of those things are obtainable. They're all an illusion. There's nothing there. Even if you obtain one for just a moment, a day, a week, a year, it changes. So the shorter the list, the greater the happiness. Try it. Don't believe a word I'm saying, but do try it out. It's very helpful. Mindfulness is the daily activity. In our daily lives, we want to practice. When one comes back from a course, one usually feels all fired up with enthusiasm. This is great, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life last about a week or two. We don't do anything for the rest of our lives. The only useful intention and determination is I'm going to sit down in meditation this morning or when going to bed at the time of going to bed tomorrow morning. That's all. And then again, going to bed at night, I'm going to sit tomorrow morning one day at a time. For the rest of our lives, it sounds absolutely daunting, especially if we're not that old yet. If we're pretty old, it doesn't matter anymore. But if we're not so old, I mean, it's just an impossible situation. How do I know a thing like that? So one day at a time, I will sit in the morning and meditate. For most people who have... Um, business uh, to attend to and have busy lives, the morning is the best time. When they come back from work at night, usually the mind is so tired that it can hardly do anything in meditation. If that's not the case, morning and evening. If that is the case, use more time in the morning when the mind is still fresh. Uh, some people feel sleepy in the morning, so have a cold shower and a cup of coffee or whatever it may be, or do a few wake-up exercises, whatever it might be. For most people who have daily duties, the morning is the best. By the time they come home from work or from attending to their duties, the mind is so churned up and has so many things to think about that it can hardly stay away from the pillow. If it can stay away from the pillow, but can't get concentrated, the best thing to do in the evening would be loving-kindness meditation, particularly directed towards all the people that one has met during the day who haven't acted the way one wanted to. That one, and that way, we don't carry it over to the next day. And we might meet the same people again. And if we actually do it from the heart, we will recognize eventually, even immediately or eventually, that our relationship to those same people has become better. In fact, we might think, oh, they've changed. They haven't. We have. So a loving-kindness meditation in the evening towards all those people one has met, and of course all others that one can think of, will be very effective. Use as much time in the morning as your determination allows. 
Of course, we need sleep, that's true. But we don't need quite as much as we think we do. We can get up earlier, as you have noticed here. It is possible. And an alarm clock is not very expensive. So it is very useful because not only is that the best time for most people, but also one gets a feeling of satisfaction. I got up. I did it. We have immediate karmic resultant of a good intention. Sitting down to meditate brings, in any case, good karma, no matter what we do. The intention itself. Then, if we can get concentrated on top of that, of course, mm -hmm. our day will work much better. Always start with loving kindness towards yourself. And in the morning, before leaving the house, going out into the real world, in apostrophes, a loving-kindness meditation for those people that are around you, that you know you will meet, for people in general. It changes the foundation of one's feeling with which one enters into that world out there where we meet so many people. The more often we do a loving-kindness meditation, with or without feeling, hopefully with, but if necessary even without, the easier life becomes. It is the oil that is poured into the, the wheels that turn our daily lives. Without that oil, the wheels clang and crash. Besides that, practice means mindfulness. The four foundations, watching. But as we watch ourselves and become aware of either unwholesome thought or unwholesome emotion, the next step is substituting. Changing it to wholesome. Unless we do that, our mind will not be habituated towards the wholesome. So watching what we do will be, and what we do physically, or what we do mentally or emotionally, will be greatly enhanced if we use our skill of substitution. It will also help us to realize that we don't have to believe what goes on in our own mind. We can substitute. We don't have to stick to what's in there. This is the most important single aspect for a meditator, to stop believing what we're thinking. It's neither believable nor is it pleasant, nor is it useful in most cases. Only when it's directed and deliberate does it become so. And this non-belief of what we are thinking, of course, carries into liberation. Because at this point in time, we think we're somebody. So as long as we believe it, we're going to be it. We're going to be somebody and even somebody special, maybe. The Zen people have a lovely saying, nothing special. Everything just is. So if we believe our mind, that's the way it is. 
now and for a long time to come. If we stop believing what the mind says, we may be able to change that too, little by little, step by step. Now I'd like to say something about why it is very beneficial for us to take precepts and refuge. Naturally, we may have the intention, we don't want to kill, we don't want to steal, we don't want to have sexual misconduct, we don't want to use wrong speech, and we don't want to take intoxicating drinks or drugs. And the question which is often asked, and I'm going to forestall it, it means all drinks and drugs. It doesn't mean a little. And that's up to anybody, whatever they want to do with it. It's everybody's own decision. But while we may have that intention and think that's fine, nothing to it, it's so much helped if we actually do it in a ceremony which is an more or less public announcement of our intention. I like to compare that to making a public announcement of one's intention to live together in marriage. It's a public announcement of trying to be faithful and uphold each other's happiness. Now, we can do that totally unpublicly. We can just move in with each other, which, of course, has been done over and over again. And sometimes that works. But this public announcement, which we also do in other cases, for instance, when we ordain as monks or nuns, it's also a public announcement, helps us to remember. Because the ceremony itself makes an impact on the mind. It can't help but do that. Greater or lesser impact. And because of that, there's a remembrance. And also, because of that, one has the togetherness of other people who have the same intention and have made the same commitment and that's a support system. One is together in it. One's trying together. And anyone who has tried to keep these precepts pure knows that that isn't done just by itself. It's a deliberate act. One has to work at it all the time. It only changes with stream entry. At stream entry, we come to the safe spot, if you remember. And at that safe spot, keeping the precepts pure is no longer difficult. Until then, keeping the precepts pure is always actual intention and work. Having the togetherness and support system of others has that kind of ease which makes it a little more possible for the mind not to veer away from that. We have that very common um, distraction in the mind that we like to go to that which is easy. And we often think that that which brings sensual gratification is easy. And it appears to be easy because no mental or physical effort is needed, usually. 
or less mental and physical effort. But it isn't easy in a way that it produces ease. It's just, just the opposite. So doing a, a, making a public commitment to keeping the precepts pure is a foundation, it's a help. Now, should one break one of the precepts, which is quite within the realm of the Buddha's teachings, because he says, I undertake the training. I'm going to train myself. So if one breaks one, the thing to do is to repeat it to oneself that one makes a new commitment to it. Tries it again. That's all. In many Buddhist countries, it is common practice to repeat these precepts every morning. If one means it, that's fine. If one only does it because it is traditional, of course, it doesn't work. But if one repeats it every morning because one has that intention to live the day like that, very, very good. And so if you remember them from what we are going to do, and repeat them every morning to yourself when it takes a minute if you do it in your mind, it may be very helpful. It may keep a feeling of It's very helpful. Now that's the reason for the precepts. Now the refuge is something else again. We take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. The Buddha is not this statue. The Buddha is the enlightenment principle. And the statue is the symbol for it. That's all. Man and his symbols. They are reminders. The enlightenment principle, you can call it the God principle if you like. It's the overall principle of purity which we can connect with. The more purity we have, the easier it is to connect. The more we practice for purity, the more we become connected with it. This overall enlightenment purity principle is the one we commit ourselves to to emulate. Now that commitment brings us a shelter, a refuge. There are no real mental shelters anywhere except those that we ourselves make. When we're able to do that, we have a safety feeling from our own difficulties from our own evil roots because our commitment goes towards the good roots in us. Now committing ourselves to a pathway which leads there is as if we have taken on a certain protection for ourselves. The more we work with it, the more protected we are. That's why it's called a refuge. It's a protection. 
It's the one and only protection which really promises safety, and it's within. And it is totally a commitment within which we pronounce and manifest in a certain way by saying it and by paying homage to it. The Dhamma is the teaching. To use the teaching as our refuge. The more we know about the teaching, the easier that becomes. The more we can remember of the teaching, the more we can use it. The teaching has to be first heard, read or heard, then we need to remember. As we remember, we need to practice, and as we practice, we need to evaluate. Taking refuge in that teaching means that this is then our aim, our commitment, that we use it as our protection, that it is that which will look after us if we connect to it. We say, the Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner. Obviously, how can it not? Because it will always go in the direction of goodness and purity. Goodness and purity is not easy to come by in this world, not even in our own hearts. Our own hearts are divided between both, the six roots. And that division is constantly creating havoc. One is connected with greed and hate, and the other side is connected with our desire to be pure and loving and giving. The Sangha, and that needs to be said here especially strongly, are not people who sit on pillows. The Sangha in this case, into which we can take, where we can take refuge, are those who have become enlightened by following the Dhamma. It's not even those who wear the robe. In ordinary everyday language, Sangha means those who wear the robes of the Buddha. These robes have been called very nicely the banner of the Buddha, or the flag. It's nothing but a flag. The flagpole doesn't matter at all. This is just the flag of the Buddha. But we don't take refuge in that. We take refuge in those who have become enlightened, practicing the Dhamma. And there have been, of course, over the centuries, many of those. Whether we know them or not, doesn't matter. It is our confidence that we use at that point that such an enlightenment principle pronounced in the teaching produces enlightenment in those who follow it. And by making our commitment, we have that inner confidence that we also can do it and will one day belong to the Noble Sangha. Noble Sangha 
the ones who have become enlightened. The word Sangha, literally translated, means community. So it is used for many different things, and but in this case, of course, it has this special meaning. It is done three times. This is a tradition in the Buddhist teaching, and I mentioned it once before, that if you say it three times, the teacher has to answer, but also if you say something three times, hopefully you remember it. And also we have that three point division because of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Three points. So very often things are done in three. One for each in that case. But also because three is the traditional affirmation. I really mean it. I'm not just saying it. I mean it. I'm saying it again and I'm saying it again. Now, refuge can bring confidence to the heart that there is a path which is true and tried, has been tried for two and a half thousand years, and again and again it has worked for a few people, never for everybody. It's not possible, but it can work. And the path itself, with its long-standing tradition, has always brought some purity to the minds of the people who were committed to it. If we don't commit ourselves, we may consider it a hobby or something we do on holidays or on meditation courses or when we meet somebody who really is interested in it and talks about it, but that doesn't really work. It keeps us on the outer edge, giving us the illusion that we are spiritually interested and connected. But that's not enough. What we need to be is spiritually developed. And that only happens with a full-blown commitment. That full-blown commitment does not, and I want to repeat that again, mean only sitting on a pillow with crossed legs. That's only one single part of many parts. The whole can be looked upon as a huge jigsaw puzzle, which has many bits and pieces, maybe a thousand pieces, there are a thousand piece jigsaw puzzles, and the picture is enlightenment. Whatever you like to make a picture of enlightenment, I don't know, I don't have such an imagination how to picture that, but that's the full picture. And we need to use eventually every piece of that jigsaw puzzle to put it together. You can't leave any of them out. They've all got their place. So we have to first have the top of the box, which has the picture. So we know this is what it means. This is what's going to be. It's going to be enlightenment. Okay? This is what I'm putting together. And as I'm trying to put it together, obviously it's not so easy. 
So one has to look again and again how it fits together. And the only way that we can make it fit is if we use several of those bits and pieces at the same time. And I've already mentioned meditation, mindfulness, substitution, and healthy health food for the mind. Here we have one of the strongest and largest pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, which will bring us a more defined idea of what this whole picture is supposed to be like. The commitment and to the moral conduct and the protection that we find in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, the refuge. This can help us by giving us a, um, a feeling of not just the commitment but also the connection, the connection with so many other people who practice in this way, the group support, where we don't actually know all these people, we don't meet them all, but those who have taken refuge and precepts are our co-workers, and we have them as companions on the path. If we have that as a feeling, we also feel stronger. We have so many companions, there are 500 million Buddhists in the world, which of course, in particularly in Asia, but um, one would say that anyone who calls himself a Buddhist takes refuge and precept. With that as a background, we have a feeling of strength. Any kind of endeavor needs and that's why this will help us greatly. Would you like to ask any questions about precept and refuge before we start doing anything about it? Yes. Even if somebody has a theistic commitment that they might feel that taking refuge and precepts in this is the conflicting um, spiritual endeavor, I don't see that that is a conflict because the enlightenment principle is a God principle. If God is understood correctly, which it usually isn't because it's difficult, <laughs> it is the enlightenment principle. It's all we can work for. I mean, we even from a logical point of view, what else can we work for? Um, if anybody feels that this is a problem, uh, it's better not to uh, do it. One should not make any difficulties in one's own heart uh, about them, things like that. If there's a very strong commitment to something else, one should rather not uh, take these refuge and precepts. It's, uh, you know, 
these kind of there are other commitments that people have sometimes in the Buddhist tradition the Buddhist traditions all agree on refuge and people whether we take them this way or that way that's only ritual that has nothing to do with the actual um, aspect and underlying a truth of it so there's no problem in any of the Buddhist path anything else? Um, if I want to substitute this clock here with this one I've got to have this one fully in hand put it over there and pick up this one right but if I suppress the knowledge of this clock namely by having it somewhere here and I want this there's nothing I can do I can't substitute it I've got to find it first so I've got to have it fully in hand in order to substitute it you can't substitute what you've suppressed. There's no way. You've got to know it fully and put something else there. Right? Anything else? <laughs> Gets lost. <laughs> One of the traditions is also to keep your hands in what is called Anjali, which means this. While we're doing the chanting and the precepts, um, in English I won't be chanting, I'll just say it and you can just repeat it after me. Uh, this Anjali is also a greeting in the East, very, in many countries, not in all of course, and it's a very nice uh, way of um, relating to each other. It is meaning, the meaning is it comes from my heart. And uh, when we greet each other, it comes from my heart to you. But here, with the precept and refuge, it comes from my heart. So while I'm chanting and while you're repeating all the time, <coughs> please put your hands in Anjali like this. Namo tasa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddha Sang Udhang Saranang Chami I take refuge in the Buddha Dhammang Saranang Chami I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sanghang Saranangha Chami I take refuge in the Sangha. Dutyampi Buddhang Saranangha Chami 
For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Dute ampidamang saranga charming. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Dute ampidamang saranga charming. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Atiampi Buddhang Sarananga Charming. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Atiampi Dhammang Sarananga Charming. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Atiampi Sanghang Sarananga Charming. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Saranagamanang Sampunang. Panasipata Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Adina dana veramani sika padam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame so michachara veramani sika padam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musavada veramani sika. Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh speech. Sura Maryam Majapamadatana Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs. Tisaranena sadhim panchasilang dhammang sadukang surakitang katva pamadena sampadeta. The last one means. May the taking and keeping of these precepts and refuges give you happiness and well-being.
please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Imagine that in your heart there's a crystal clear lake, visible all through to the bottom, shining in the sun. There's a beautiful white lotus flower growing there, opening all its petals to receive the sun. Beauty and purity within your heart. And out of the center of the lotus flower comes a golden stream of light containing warmth, brightness, sun, filling you, surrounding you with well-being, with love, with protection. Let the light from the beauty and purity of your heart shine to the heart of the one sitting nearest you, filling him or her with warmth and love, embracing him or her with a sense of well-being and safety.
let the light from the center of your heart reach out to everyone here filling each one's heart with your warmth your love your care your friendship embracing each one with the purity of your heart. Think of those people you're most likely to meet after leaving here. Let them arise before your mind's eye. Fill them and embrace them with the light and warmth and love from your heart. bringing them the gift from your meditation. Now think of your parents, your loved ones, people that are close to you. Bring them the gift of your meditation. Let your heart speak to them. Reach out with the warmth and the light and the care and the concern that you carry within so that they may take part in that feeling loved and cared for
think of all your good friends. Let them too have the benefit of your meditation. Give them your love, your care, your friendship. Let the light from your heart fill them with warmth. Now think of your neighbors at home, the people you're going to meet at work or in the shops on the street, offices, or wherever you might know you're going. Think of all these people, whether you know them or not. Let them too have part in your meditation. Let the light from your heart, fill them with love, with warmth, with care. Think of anyone whom you find difficult. Where you may have negative feelings. (coughs) Use this person (coughs) as your teacher. teaching you the equality of all beings, showing you the purity of your heart, which can love in spite of adversity. Let this person also have the warmth from your heart.
think of all the people who live around here in this place itself in the houses around this place in the whole little town the next town and let your heart open to all of them so that they may too have part in your meditation may feel the warmth emanating from your heart giving them love being concerned about them, caring for their well-being. Let them feel that your heart can do that. and go further to the big towns Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco think of all the people that you have seen there and the many more you may not have seen the many houses in which they live expand the opening of your heart so that it can reach out to hundreds and thousands and millions of people's hearts touching them with your warmth with your care with your love Expand your heart even further so that it can embrace the whole of the state of California and all the people and beings living there, searching for happiness, searching for peace. Give them all your heart contains as your gift. Let your heart expand even further and the warmth and the love in it grow to infinite proportions so that it can touch upon and embrace all the beings, people or others living in the whole of the United States. 
picture them here and there, all searching for the same thing. Make your love bigger and bigger so that it becomes immense, embracing them all. And now think of beings everywhere on this globe. Picture this globe in your mind and then think of beings on land, in the water, in the air, human or otherwise, small or large, any color or creed, belief, any kind any species, all searching for peace and happiness. Let your heart grow so immense that it can embrace all these beings on the whole of this globe, giving them the gift of your love and care. Being united not separated through loving Put your attention back on yourself. Feel yourself part of all that exists, being able to love for no other reason than that you and all else exist. Let this golden stream of light fill you from head to toe and surround you with warmth and light and love. Being drenched in it, bathed in it.
now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower which closes its petals and then anchor the lotus flower in your heart so that it may become one with it. We share the merits that we have made in this meditation retreat with all our teachers. with our parents, with our loved ones, with our friends, with our enemies. We share the merits 